Hello and welcome to Empowering Minds, the Brussels-based podcast from Mental Health Europe, hosted by me, Laura Marchetti. On Empowering Minds, we discuss all things mental health. In the past three episodes, we discussed about young people's mental health, mental health and transparency regulation between doctors and the pharma industry, and the use of coercive measures in mental health services. If you missed the episodes, you can find them at www.mhe-sme.org. In today's episode, we will attempt to answer the question that gives the title to the episode itself. What is normal? And more specifically, what is normal in the mental health experience? To accompany us in this journey, we are joined by four experts that will help us unpack our understanding of normality and mental health. Our first guest is Dr. Sophia Damien, Associate Professor of Applied Linguistics at the UCL Centre for Applied Linguistics in London. Dr. Damien specializes in language communication around illness and healthcare, with specific interest in depression and voice hearing. She has written extensively on this subject, and she's here with us today to answer the question, does language influence the way we understand the world? So, so yes, there's um, there's quite a bit of evidence that uh, the types of words we use to talk about certain things influence how we then reason about them or think about them subsequently. So um, together with uh, my colleagues, Rose Hendricks and Elena Semino, we actually uh, conducted a, a little experiment where we gave people different stories of someone with cancer and someone with depression. And in one of the stories, we described uh, the person's illness um, using metaphors to do with war or battle or violence. And in another uh, story, we use the same text, but use different metaphors. We use metaphors of journey um, and and traveling. And we found that um, if people were exposed to the story with the battle metaphors, they tended to think about the ill person's life in less positive terms. Um, They tended to think that perhaps their chances of recovery weren't quite as good. And this was purely to do with the different uh, the different word that was used to describe the experience. So absolutely, there's evidence that uh, that language sort of frames our understanding of, of the world. Could the same be said for the other way around? So does our understanding of the world frame the way we use language and the way we speak? Yeah, we tend to think about this as sort of mutually influential. The the sort of effect goes both ways. It's certainly not deterministic. Um, the, the, okay. the, the way that we use language doesn't absolutely determine how we then see the world. No. What could you tell us about uh, the word normal? The word normal is, is interesting. It's, it's really, really common um, in English, certainly. So if you look at a really, really large collection of English language, a large corpus, we tend to call it, then uh, the word normal occurs around 80 times per million words. Um, and this is roughly as frequent as the word nice. So just just think about how often, if you speak English, you would use the word nice in everyday 
uh, language. And that's how common the word normal is as well, which means that we really do think about normality or we, we, we draw on the concept of normality quite a lot in our everyday uh, language use. Another interesting thing about the word normal, if, if I may continue there, is yeah. that it actually tends to co-occur with the word healthy. So there seems to be quite a strong association between the, the concept of normality and the concept of health. Okay. And uh, this would also happen when we, when we talk about uh, mental health. So um, this also happens when we use the, the word normal in a more mental health context. The idea that we draw on normality or on the on the concept of normality when we think about mental health or mental ill health um, is certainly there. The word normal doesn't in itself tend to be used mm -hmm. particularly frequently um, in the context of mental health. Um, but generally speaking, the definitions that different mental health conditions have often implicitly draw on a sense of normality. And we can actually see this uh, on the basis of how the word mental, the words mental illness or mental health uh, themselves are used in everyday language. And what could be deduced from this? Well, the word mental illness and the word mental health tend to co-occur or, or sort of collocate is the technical term with, um, with adjectives and adverbs that describe degrees. So we tend to talk about mental illness as severe or mental health as poor um, or serious or extreme. Mm -hmm. And these terms, um, they're all relative to something. And the something that they're relative to is normality. Mm -hmm. uh, similarly, with uh, we, we, the, the words mental illness or mental health tend to co-occur with words that talk about temporality. So uh, words like prolonged or temporary or longstanding. And again, a lot of these words are matters of degree. They're not definite. Um, we, can't, we can't specify exactly how, how long temporary is. It's relative to something that we might consider normal. And what might be the problem with this? Well, the problem okay. is, or, or the problem can be, that what we consider to be normal uh, is different across time, across geography, across individual groups of friends even. Um, and Lisa Apignanesi in her book, Mad, Bad and Sad, actually describes this quite eloquently. Um, she says that illness is a product of a subtle interplay between cultural perspectives and a shifting biological reality, and that this is especially true in the case of mental illness. And she also talks about sort of a period's definition of masculinity and femininity. So, so what is considered appropriate uh, feminine behavior or masculine behavior in any given time period, how that is intricately linked with that period's definition of quote-unquote madness. So what we think of as sort of solid, um, tangible definitions of mental illness are actually very much bound up with our sense of normality and our sense of normality is always changing. Um, and therefore what we think of as tangible might really not be quite as tangible as we think. So to conclude our conversation, could you give us an answer on the question, what is normal? That's a good question. And I think the answer is different for whichever 
mental health condition we happen to think about at the moment, because as I said, the word normal itself isn't necessarily used that much um, in in a technical sense in, in mental health contexts. But if you think about the definition of depression, for example, it's defined as continuous low mood, continuous sadness, hopelessness, helplessness, difficulty making decisions, not enjoying life, being tearful or guilt-ridden. So if you think of that definition, then normality implicitly is constructed as one where we enjoy life, well, where we don't feel tearful or guilty, where we can easily make decisions, um, and where we are generally just upbeat and, and sort of hopeful all the time. Um, now, all of these are defined in terms of degrees, but we, we all might want to question whether our normality is really captured by what I just said. With Dr. Damien, we have seen an interesting link and strong association between the concept of normality and the concept of a help. It might therefore be worth turning to the medical field, and more specifically to psychiatry, to shed some light on how mental health and normality are approached in the medical practice. Doctors often tend to turn to two diagnostic manuals to define and describe mental health problems. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, and the International Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems, or ICD. Professor Peter Kinderman from the University of Liverpool is here to tell us a bit more about these manuals. DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and the uh, ICD, the International Classification of Diseases, are two different ways of classifying, diagnosing mental health problems. Uh, they come from different traditions and they have uh, different ways of approaching the problem. So the DSM is an American system which is designed specifically for psychiatry, whereas the ICD system is the World Health Organization's classification of mental health problems. And it's part of a much wider scheme of understanding all illnesses, all injuries, all diseases, all threats to our health. And so they come from, from different perspectives. What both of them do is that they offer a way of assessing and diagnosing mental health problems. And that means also that they come from a particular tradition, from a, a medical healthcare uh, tradition. They have a particular approach to the diagnosis of what are thought of as mental disorders. That's not necessarily the approach that's used by sociologists or therapists or psychologists. Uh, but it does reflect the fact that for many years, psychiatry has been a branch of medicine and therefore developing diagnostic uh, manuals has been a very important part of that branch of medicine. And um, this, this medical approach that the manuals take um, has been one of the reasons why the manuals in the past years have received quite um, heavy um, critical scrutiny. Um, could you tell us a bit more sure. about so the criticism the, that have the been uh, raised around the, the manuals? All diagnostic manuals is perfectly laudable aim. It's to understand people's problems and to give practitioners an idea of what they might do to help, what, what treatments would be available. So in, in conventional medicine, in, in physical health medicine, you first diagnose an illness, and then that diagnosis helps you as a doctor choose the treatment that's appropriate. It also reassures people that 
Um, you know, it, it, it's one kind of problem as opposed to another. It tells people that you as the doctor, you know what's going on for the person. You, you as the patient understand that you, your problems have now been recognized and understood and there's a plan of action for your care. So there are various reasons why giving people a diagnosis, certainly in physical health, is a, is a very good thing. And there are real purposes served by attempting to give somebody a diagnosis in the field of mental health. The problem is that um, mental health problems, psychological problems, just don't seem to fit into the categories that the diagnostic manuals uh, list for them. And then even when people's problems do match those uh, definitions, it's very difficult to see that the problems have fit the model of an illness that then requires treatment. So what tends to happen in uh, the DSM and ICD systems is that we see a number of quite understandable, sometimes even quite common psychological problems like anxiety or low mood or problems with eating, sometimes even quite serious problems like feeling hopeless or helpless, feeling like there's no future, having suicidal thoughts, sometimes hearing voices. And these are all problems that require help, at least some of the time. And certainly they're problems that people find distressing. Whether they're symptoms of illness is a whole different question. And so when the DSM and ICD systems take those problems and then say, as a result of them, the person has, for instance, schizophrenia or major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder, or even possibly some of the more insulting labels, things like personality disorders, that's when there tend to be problems with this particular approach to mental health care. This problem that you raise, I mean, do we have another another system or other systems that we could uh, uh, we could use to to understand yes, these problems? So the, the basic principle, which is recognizing that the person in front of you has a problem, is distressed, has has an issue that they may want help with, is is obviously perfectly reasonable. The the difficulty, I think, is turning that um, recognition of a person's problems into the idea that there's an illness, a disease that lies within somebody that can be identified as being different from a healthy state and requiring treatment. And there, things start to go a little bit wrong. So a lot of psychiatrists, psychologists, um, charity workers working in the field of mental health, even politicians and policymakers are starting to think that maybe instead of attaching medical labels to these clusters of problems, what we should be doing is taking a little bit of a step back, absolutely recognizing the reality of people's problems, but then dealing with them as problems. A good example of this is um, the recommendations coming from the Belgian Superior Council. This is a, uh, a body of experts and service users that advise the Belgian government on how to approach health issues, and in this case, on mental health issues. And what this group did, very much um, following the perspective of Mental Health Europe, to be honest, it suggested that we uh, possibly should move away from the medical diagnosis and instead form care plans for people based on the specific problems that they're presenting with. So if somebody is hearing voices and has low mood, then you need a care plan that deals with 
the fact that they hear voices and are distressed by them and that they have low mood. If someone is feeling suicidal, instead of diagnosing them with an illness such as, for instance, major depressive disorder, the thing to do is for health professionals to come up with an action plan to help that person you know, deal with their feeling suicidal, obviously to keep them alive. Um, so the Belgian Ministry of Health is moving away from diagnostic uh, approaches towards a problem-based approach that we as health professionals, including, of course, psychiatrists, and if necessary, including medication and hospitals even, but we as health professionals respond to people's problems rather than try to diagnose illnesses. Um, this is also a, an approach recommended by um, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on our rights to health, Denias Puras, himself a, um, a practicing psychiatrist from Lithuania, and again suggesting that this idea that our job is to treat illnesses kind of misses the point, and instead we should sit down with people, recognize their real-world problems and the ways in which those problems have impacted on their emotions and their behavior, and then offer help based on what it is that people are describing rather than the idea that behind those problems lies an illness. And it's worth even pointing out that in America, both the National Institute of Mental Health, which is a very, very large, very wealthy funding body, recently suggested that the diagnostic manuals aren't very good for basing research because the disorders that they describe cut across um, the sorts of processes that are happening within the person's uh, psychology, but also within their brain. So the, the, the illnesses don't seem to map onto brain processes. And then finally, um, uh, uh, over in the States, a lot of researchers are suggesting, therefore, developing different ways of understanding people's problems based on underlying brain mechanisms or underlying psychological problems. So you've got a lot of people suggesting internationally that although it was a good idea once to come up with diagnostic labels that might give us some indication of the problems that are lying behind a person's distress, actually by medicalizing these problems, by coming up with relatively simplistic labels for people's problems, we're missing a point. And instead, we should take a step back and recognize people's real world problems, low mood, thoughts about suicide, hearing voices, for instance, instead of diagnosing illnesses. And then the final point would be that might also open the door for us to be able to think about the things that have happened in people's lives to precipitate those problems, rather than assuming that the problems have come about because of some illness that needs to be treated as a medical problem. We have seen how mental health and mental health problems can be framed and understood by the way we speak. We have also seen how a certain approach can strongly influence the type of support we can receive from medical professionals. If we turn now our attention to the media landscape and coverage, how does this translate in the way mental health and mental health problems are portrayed? We are joined now by Case Dijkman, who is a communication consultant and ambassador for the project Zamensterk Zonder Stigma, which in English translates into Together Strong Without Stigma. He is here with us to tell us a bit more about his role as ambassador and the project. Hi, Case. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, could you tell us a bit more about your your organization and the work that you do as an ambassador? 
Hello, Lara. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Uh, sure, I can. Uh, we are ambassadors are at Samenstirk, are people with uh, lived experience. That means we know what we're talking about. Uh, uh, we, in our own lives, uh, deal with mental health issues, uh, but we don't like the stigma around it. So what we do is try to be open about the issues and how they affect or, or maybe don't affect our lives. And we do this um, whenever it's appropriate. Uh, in our private life, at work, uh, talking to people, giving presentations in, in schools, universities, uh, organizations, uh, or anywhere uh, or any place where people want us to tell about what we experience. And apart from that, I'm the project manager for influencing the media uh, towards less stigmatizing news coverage, because we find that uh, in the media, there's a big problem uh, in stigmatizing. Um, media are very okay. stereotyped about my mental health uh, issues, so that's what we do. What I wanted to ask you in this uh, monitoring of media um, uh, and the way the media portrays uh, mental ill health, um, have you found any interesting results? Yes, well, um, we found uh, most of our research is about framing and we found four uh, frames that are predominant in the news coverage. And the first mm -hmm. frame which is very dominant in Dutch media, is that people with mental health issues are unpredictable, uh, unreliable, dangerous, and possibly even violent, uh, going around stabbing people. That's a very dominant frame in news coverage. And the second frame emphasizes that people are pathetic, they don't have self-control, and maybe even be imposters. Uh, the third frame emphasizes people with mental health issues are people with special gifts, like you're more creative or visionary, or maybe you're a hidden genius. Um, and the fourth frame emphasizes that people are just ordinary people, but with a mm -hmm. specific problem. Okay. And uh, in the news, as I said, in the news coverage in the Netherlands, the first frame, the danger frame, is very uh, dominant and the reason for this is that for like four or five years verwarde personen that is confused people are a big mm -hmm. issue in the dutch media okay. um, and the media coverage generates uh, a broad unrest in society about people with health uh, mental health issues uh, as if we are roaming the streets causing trouble stabbing innocent bystanders even i understand and uh, um as uh, as your monitoring research um, found any evidence or, or information on whether uh, the the concept of normality and the use of the word normal is actually um, present in in media outlets when talking about uh, people with mental health problems? Yeah, very much so. Uh, media tend to write and speak about people with mental health problems as abnormal. Uh, uh, in the sense that they are not behaving uh, as they should. Because mm -hmm. uh, normal and abnormal are in fact very uh, moral terms. If you say uh, uh, somebody is, is acting abnormal, uh, you're yeah. in fact saying you, the, your way of behavior is a threat to society. Yes. And by saying that people with mental health issues are in fact acting abnormal, uh, you are in fact saying uh, people with mental health issues are a threat. Um, okay. And that's why we, we as Sam Sterks on the Stigma, uh, we try to avoid these terms normal or abnormal. 
uh, we advocate uh, 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 terms like uh, ordinary people, gewone mensen in Dutch. Mm -hmm. <coughs> gewone mensen, ordinary people, it has no moral implications. Uh, we don't want to judge behavior. Uh, people with mental health uh, problems are not uh, abnormal. Uh, and most people with mental health issues are not confused. Uh, and even if they are, it's mostly only temporarily. Um, any, and, and, and moreover, anyone can be uh, confused. So the mm -hmm. media are mixing up these, uh, these terms. And uh, by doing so, uh, stigmatizing uh, uh, people with mental health uh, issues. It's, it's, it feels like there's a finger pointing. You are mm -hmm. abnormal people. And we are not. Yeah. We, are, we are ordinary people. We have specific problems. Okay. Uh, but it's not like we are uh, uh, any different from anyone else. And um, would you have um, su some suggestion or advice on how we could try to move a, a bit away from this negative and stigmatizing portrays that we tend to see in media? Um, what it could be done? Um, I know it might be a bit of a difficult question, uh, but if you have some well. ideas... <laughs> Yeah, well, well, I, I wish we had a simple, uh, straightforward recipe, but well, we don't. Uh, the, the problem is, of course, that this uh, this danger frame is is uh, um, well, it's, it's it's really for journalists. It's like uh, they understand it uh, immediately. It's irresistible. They, they, mm -hmm. it, yeah? So, well, what we we try to work out at alternatives, of course, like uh, giving people a name. Uh, giving more background information, taking your time, avoid stereotyping, uh, talk to us, uh, not only to the police or the uh, psychiatrists, but uh, talk to us. We know what we're talking about. Um, but, well, this this works only when a journalist really wants to do his job uh, uh, good, like uh, show different sides of a story or uh, taking his uh, social responsibility. Uh, but, but, well, journalists tend to work uh, fast and try to score, have scoops, uh, have a lot of readers, a lot of clicks. And, well, that's, that's really uh, a problem. Uh, so what we find is the best thing, the thing that works best is that we, when we approach them personally. So okay. um, I tell journalists, what the way you are presenting uh, the way your news, eh, your news coverage is harmful to us. It's probably unintentionally, mm -hmm. you don't want to harm us, but it is in fact harmful. And I can explain why. And I pose the question, is this really what you want to do? Is this what you want to do as a journalist? Harm me, harm us. Because there are other ways uh, to bring the same news facts without harming us. So just think about that. And then a journalist, any journalist uh, uh, who wants to listen, uh, who wants to talk uh, to us, um, well, the, the, any journalist uh, will do that, will stand still and say, hey, what am I doing? So, well, we hope this has an effect, but it is, of course, a uh, long term and we have to do a lot of uh, footwork, <laughs> a lot of calling, a lot of emailing, a lot of writing, a lot of talking. But, well, it, uh, when it works, it's fine. We do that. We are joined now by Dominique de Marnet, social entrepreneur and mental health advocate. Last year, Dominique published a book entitled 
warum normal sein gar nicht so normal ist und warum reden hilft. Which in English translates into why being normal is not so normal and why talking helps. In the book, she talks about her own personal experience and the misconception around the notion of normality. She's here now to share some of her reflection with us. Well, there are certain things in our society where there is a special idea what normal is or what it's supposed to look like or how we're supposed to be like. And for me, it was a long time. I really just wanted to be normal and I totally ignored my own needs or how I really was, what I really wanted because I was so busy with um, looking around me for, for guidance. And this um, kept me from, from living a good life, I would actually say. Um, this idea of, okay, I should be like this, but I am different, but this is normal, so I want to be like this. Um, and as soon as I found out what was going on with me, I learned that there are so many different ways of being normal. And just because the media or society has a very narrow-minded idea of what you are supposed to be like or what's normal, Many of us tend to tend to really not be their true selves. Um, and I learned as, as soon as I freed myself from this society expectations um, that everything felt so much better and that this was my own kind of normal. And I started to talk to people about this um, being normal and found out, well, there is just not the one normal that we sometimes wish or media makes us think there is. And uh, when you say that talking helps in your book, I'm assuming it refers to your uh, recovery process. How, I mean, when you came to the realization that you were somehow trying to comply with an idea of normality that was put onto you, how did you manage to get out of this box in which you felt a sort of, you know, cage, if we want to call it in this way. How did your recovery started and how did you, did you manage to come to this realization? Really, really long until I was stronger than my illnesses or these ideas in my head. Um, but once I, once I gathered all the power um, and the first thing really to do is to step out of your own head. Um, For me, I had to accept that I couldn't do my recovery alone, that I needed help, that um, it was okay to, to get help. And once I, I opened this door to the outside world, I would just say, um, then I had a chance to realize how many different types of normal there were, how many other people were feeling something similar like me. But as, as long as I kept it all to myself and only discussed with me in my head, um, this couldn't change. I really had to, to open up and by talking, I realized many crucial points about what I really thought, how I really felt. And... This gave me the chance to discuss with other people all this, like, how is this for you and what's normal for you? And I found this just sets um, the things right in our heads, because if, if, if it's just our head that's discussing with itself, then hmm, there is a closed circle. Um, but if we go into conversations with other people, then we have a chance to, to balance it all out. And um, as a final question, I mean, as we have seen from your experience as well, there are a series of 
arbitrary misconception and prejudice about what normal is and should be. And often these misconceptions tend to construct a very narrow idea of what normal is, while the reality is much different. So we are in this sort of paradox that is on the one end kind of being forced upon us, but on the other end, we can also voluntarily or involuntarily foster. So in your opinion, more in a broader sense, how can we move away from this narrow idea of normality and construct an idea that is broader and more accepting of differences? That, that's a tough one. Um, I, <laughs> um, I don't think there's the one right way. There are many, many things you could do. But I, I think a good thing to start is to set the focus not on the outside world, but um, to you yourself. So um, not always looking around you to the people around you. Okay, what are they doing? What is good for them? How do they have fun? But really come back to yourself because this world it's getting more and more complex with social media you compare yourself um, and you will find so many examples for all kinds of normality whatever you look for um, it will be out there so this is no longer a thing we can really use for guidance so we really have to come back to us and and accept that it's that there are um, millions of ways of being normal and that all of them are okay and if we stop like comparing us to to the our surroundings and okay so what is good for me what really helps me and as soon as you start doing that you all you automatically get more accepting for all the other variations of certain topics that are out there because you say okay i'm like this so it's totally okay for this person to be like this it's it's their normal and i have my normal and if you find this out for you then it really automatically opens up a whole world of understanding for people around you so that's all we had the time for in episode four of empowering minds If you would like to receive episode 5 straight into your inbox, go to www.mhe-sme.org forward slash podcast. We would like to say a big thank you to Dr. Sophia Damien, Professor Peter Kinderman, Mental Health Ambassador Case Dijkman and MHE Senior Policy Advisor on Youth, Dominique Demarnet.